Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but can't find diverse, talented candidates? Then we have something that can help, our job board. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, Pollen Midwest is looking for an art director. Pollen is based in Minneapolis, but this is a remote position. Work & Co. is looking for a senior QA analyst in Brooklyn, New York. Architecture Plus Information is looking for a graphic-slash-branding-slash-experience designer in New York City. The Advanced Education Research and Development Fund is looking for a senior UX researcher. This is a remote position. W.W. Norton & Company, Inc. is looking for a design assistant in New York City. And lastly, Pentagram is looking for a graphic designer in New York City. For just $99, we will feature your listing on our job board for 30 days and will help spread the word about it to our audience of listeners. We also offer an annual job board subscription for companies and organizations. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more information on these listings and others. Apply today and tell them you heard about the job through Revision Path. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. Texas State University's Communication Design Program is excited to announce the State of Black Design Conference, a three-day virtual event March 4th, 5th, and 6th. This year's theme is Family Reunion, and there'll be over 50 amazing speakers, including author and educator Jelani Cobb and world-renowned poet, activist, and educator Nikki Giovanni. This year debuts the State of Black Design's Resume Book Initiative. So if you're a Black Design student or you're a Black designer looking for your next role, then listen up. You'll be able to submit your resume and your portfolio to the Resume Book, along with your institution of study and major if you're a student, and recruiters and employers will have access to it before the event. If you're interested and you want to be included in the resume book, send your info to blackdesign at txstate.edu with the subject line resume book. You have until March 3rd to submit. The State of Black Design Conference is brought to you with the support of the University of Texas at Austin, Universal Pictures Home Entertainment, Microsoft, General Motors, Design for America, Sevilla, IDSA, AIGA, and Revision Path. Tickets are available at txstate.edu forward slash black design. Just click the register now button. There'll also be a link in the show notes as well. Hope to see you there. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. And before we get into this week's interview, I just have a couple of announcements. First off, it's February, which means it's time once again for 28 Days of the Web. Now, this is the ninth installment, if you can believe it. We've been doing this since 2014. It's the ninth installment of 28 Days of the Web, which is where we showcase a different black designer or developer for each day during this month in celebration of Black History Month. 
You can check out this year's honorees and look at previous year's honorees over at 28daysoftheweb.com. If you're following us on Twitter or on Instagram, you'll see the profiles come up for every day this month. So make sure you're following us there. Secondly, thanks again so much for the reception to our recent mailbag episode. You know, some of you have written asking how you can donate to Revision Path, and it's super simple. Just go to revisionpath.com forward slash donate, and you can contribute there, or you can sign up and make a monthly contribution to the podcast. Another way to support the show is to buy our merch. I keep forgetting to mention that we have merch for some reason. I don't know. Anyway, go to revisionpath.com. Click on the merch link at the top of the page. That's going to take you to our merch store where you can pick up a Revision Path t-shirt or a mug or a hoodie. There's going to be some 28 Days of the Web merch there also just for this month. All proceeds will go right back into the production of the show. Thank you so, so much for your support. Now let's take some time and thank our accessibility sponsor for this episode, Brevity & Wit. Brevity & Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA, inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity & Wit, creative excellence without the grind. Now for this week's interview, I'm talking with Omari Souza, an assistant professor in the communication design program at Texas State University and the lead organizer of the State of Black Design Conference. Let's start the show. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do. Hey, everybody. Uh, My name is Omari Souza. I am a professor of design and design research at Texas State University, and I also organize the State of Black Design Conference. Now, you've been on the show before. The first time you came on the show was back in 2017. How's the year been going for you so far, this this 2022? Oh, man. To be completely honest with you, with uh, being in the middle of COVID, these past three years all feel like one extended year. So it doesn't even feel like I've started a new year yet. It just feels like I'm still ending 2019. Mm. Ending 2019? Yeah, I guess it all kind of has blurred together i was uh i was online earlier today and i saw where people were making these kind of comparisons like january 2020 to january 2022 like how people were first starting to talk about the coronavirus and all that sort of stuff but it does feel that way like i know a lot of folks now that are just trying to get their bearings so far yeah beginning of the year yeah yeah that's exactly what it feels like it's kind of just being up and down well, being up and down in terms of figuring out how you're maneuvering through COVID and educating and, and working, whether you're at home, whether you're allowed to wear a mask and not wear a mask based off of how the population is doing with COVID at the moment. It's all pretty tough. Granted, I, I say that living in Texas, I know in some other cities and states that have taken it far more serious in the state that I'm in, things have been a bit more constant in terms of mask wearing and uh, some of those other things. But it's it's been a lot to adapt to. Yeah. And I know you've got a lot on your plate now because you're also organizing an event while you're doing all of this. You're organizing this year's uh, State of Black Design, which begins next month. Tell me about how this event started and where you got the idea for it from. It started in a lot of places, in all honesty. I normally tell people that it started as a response to the George Floyd murder. There's a lot of 
civil unrest at the time. And there, and, and a lot of people wanted to have these conversations about race and, and the intersectionality of race with practice, regardless of what that practice was. But also at that same time period and before, there were a lot of designers in the BIPOC community that felt that they weren't being represented at the majority of design-related conferences, whether it be How or the How Conference or several others, you would look at entire like 20, 30-person lineups and maybe not see any person of color in that lineup or maybe one or two, when in reality, there was so much talent out there doing so much amazing things. So this moment after George Floyd's murder kind of ended up being this huge boiling pot of emotion. A lot of the designers feeling like they didn't have a space to be heard or to be seen or that their contributions to the industry and to the field weren't being recognized or, or appreciated. And there being this overall desire to learn more about how race is impacting these different pockets of society. So initially, I took that as an opportunity to host something on my campus. So what I thought was going to be on my campus I created an event, Bright Page, hired a student to do some of the marketing material for us and anticipated we may only get 100 or 200 students that attended our program. Lo and behold, we ended up getting roughly 4,000 people who registered for the event. And we've kind of just been continuing since after realizing that there was a demand and really a need to have some of these conversations that weren't happening prior. That's interesting about kind of, I mean, well, one, I guess the timing of all this sort of came about in an interesting way because one it did as you said happen because you were hearing from so many people that there's sort of a lack of events around black designers and then of course the summer of 2020 was this big racial reckoning so to speak which i guess for a lot of people kind of activated them into into doing something and for you this was one of those things yeah yeah and it was it it, it really felt nerve-wracking, but gratifying to actually uh, put together. You uh, were one of the folks that actually came out and, and spoke with the initial one. And I want to make sure I take my time to thank you for that, because I know that you're super busy and, you know, you, you sacrificed your time to speak at the events. But one thing that we all spoke about afterwards was the response that we got on Twitter from it. There were studios that tuned in live and actually created visual graphics of what was being discussed. There were people that tweeted and sent personal messages about how they never felt so seen or heard in the field itself. There was just such heartwarming messages that were coming in response to this at a time period where there was so much anger and anguish. So it felt really good to kind of put that together. Yeah, I remember seeing, I know Webflow was one company that sort of did these like sketch notes right along with it. And for those that are, are interested, the 2020 event, I think it's on YouTube, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's on YouTube. Yeah. And it was, it was myself. It was Renee Reed, a couple other folks who have been on the revision path podcast, but that was a really great event. It was just kind of this one day thing that we all came together and spoke and it was a lot of fun. And I'm glad to see that you got that kind of feedback from it. Yeah. I needed that as well. Timothy Brad Levins, who's also been on the show, spoke with me before programming, before I, I began planning the second event. And he said to me, like, uh, planning a conference, you typically do it in four stages. The first stage is, oh, my God, I'm so excited. I can't wait to do this. Second stage is, oh, man, this is so much harder than I thought it was going to be. The third stage is, 
I can't believe I agreed to do this. I'm never doing this again. What was I thinking? Then the fourth stage, once you start getting the responses, says, you know what? It wasn't that bad. I can do that again. All of the positive messages that I got at the time period put the battery in my back to be able to, to kind of do it again the following the following year. So given the popularity of the 2020 event, like what can we expect from State of Black Design this year? Because you're putting it on again. So there are there are a couple of things that I'm trying to do differently that I think people can be really excited about. The initial event was really my attempt to give uh, people a space and a platform and not necessarily do so in a manner that felt controlled or contrived. I really wanted everyone to be able to speak their truth and and talk in a way that other conferences haven't allowed them to. And I think that was a part of the success of the initial event, the sheer rawness of some of the discussions. The second event was really making an attempt to continue that on. But part of the response that I was getting was really from companies that were trying to figure out how do we then create this pipeline for designers of color into industry that we are struggling to find. So I used this event as a mechanism to create this pipeline. I was going to use donations and sponsorships to keep the cost of the event free to students, but then leverage that money to pay our speakers as well as make attempts to offer scholarships to students that are studying design as well. So for this event, the the conversation that I had with a number of the sponsors and stakeholders was really along the lines of what are some of the areas that our participants can be best served going forward. And one of the things we talked about is it's great to have these avenues open up where they can interview with an IBM if they'd like to, or an Argo Design or Materials or PayPal, Adobe, and everyone else that sponsored the event. However, especially considering that a lot of these participants are coming from programs that may not have uh, the funding to give the same level of education within design as some other institutions, or some folks are participating that are self-taught, it would be amazing to give some professional development opportunities. So this year, I've been speaking to a lot of folks about hosting workshops in order to teach the people that are tuning in some new skill sets that they can use to you know, improve their portfolios or to add new weapons to their utility belt when not to make a comic book pun, to improve their, their, their skill sets on a day-to-day basis, something else that they can pull on to solve complex problems. Additionally, we're speaking about hosting projects that can be worked on with particular employers to kind of gain exposure to what particular assignments are like. So not only can you interview, let's say, for example, with an NBC Universal, which will also, whom will also be a sponsor of the event, but they will also be giving competitions where you can design a movie poster for a film that doesn't exist, but it then becomes an opportunity for you to engage with art directors in this particular industry and talk about potential internships or ways that you can improve that work. We're also making uh, steps to expand our target base and we're beginning to invite and have additional programming for uh, high school juniors and seniors. So if you are getting ready to go into a college and you're a visual creative in your high school K through 12, education, but you don't know what a career will look like as a designer, how to begin it, how to start searching for a community or a community while on campus or even the right campus or program to go to, 
we're beginning this process of attempting to educate some of those students as well to try to set folks up for the success that they're looking for. Wow. So it sounds like it's kind of expanded almost into like this career fair. I mean, of course, there's going to be the different talks and stuff, but you're doing also a lot around making sure students are set up with interviews and other opportunities to network with companies. Yeah. Yeah. I really want, I'm sorry, backtracking. If after the initial event, there were a lot of companies that, um, as I mentioned prior, that were looking to find ways to diversify their workforce. And if that's a discussion that they're having, I want to be able to bring people to them, especially when a lot of the participants of these events are also saying that they would love to work for some of these Fortune 500 companies. However, I also want to make sure that I'm providing an avenue by which they can continue to improve the skill sets that they have in between this, the, the attending our conferences and in between uh, their potential interviews for one position to the other. So my hope is if a student who begins to attend from their junior year of high school takes advantage of some of the workshops that are there, if they continue to attend these workshops and listen to these panels and interview with these companies that have been sponsoring, their exposure and the connections that they would have made by the time they graduated would put them further ahead than it would have if they've never attended and never worked on anything outside of what was in their classroom. Who are some of the speakers for this year? Oh, man, we have a ton of great speakers this year. This year, we will be headlined by Nikki Giovanni which I'm super excited about. We will also have uh, Jelani Cobb, who will be speaking. We will also have Ann Berry, fellow Kent alum, that will be there. We will have Regina Gilbert, Lacey Jordan will be there, Teresa Moses, Silas Monroe, Miriam Moma, Mike Nichols, Kalina Sales, Aveta Sampson, Raja Shah, Trey Seals will be giving a workshop on type design. We will have Jennifer White Johnson that will be hosting a panel on disability design. Kelly Waters will be there. Shelby Zink from Microsoft will also be there as well. And this is just to name a few. The The list is is really extensive this year. I was going to say, that's a lot already. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, um, it's an amazing list of people. And I'm really fortunate that they have all been willing to to participate in this. It's interesting. You know, we talked about 2020 just earlier. And one thing uh, among many things that stuck out for me that year was just seeing how many black designers found community online that year. I think because of events like State of Black Design and, and so many others that started that year, black designers came around these events and really formed this the sense of community. Have you felt that since the state of black design? I feel like the year of uh, the state of black design, there were so many things happening within the community and people attempting to build their own table mm-hmm. that I think that year in general, when the first state of black design happened, we also had where the black designers hosted by Mitzi black ignite, which was hosted just a couple months um, after that by, by Heather Lee Hugh also had their event, as well as uh, myself, which I believe was the last event of the year. We were all kind of in communication with one another, especially after our initial events happened. And we've all kind of leveraged one another in order to kind of keep everyone going. We each kind of serve a different role, but 
have each come together kind of as a family just to kind of keep things going. So for the second event, I know we had Jasmine Kent from How, Heather Lee from Black Ignite, and Mitzi all sit on a panel together. I've consulted with Mitzi and Heather Lee on a number of things that I was doing for Black Ignite. Heather Lee brought me on to give a keynote. And I, I say all of this to say, like, there's not only been a community in terms of the following, but the folks that have been attempting to lead these separate initiatives have also been coming together to assist one another. So it's a fight and champion for the things that they they view as important. And I feel like that's something that's been extremely beautiful and powerful when considering three, four years ago, a lot of these spaces weren't available. There was no State of Black Design or Black Ignite or Where are the Black Designers. And the followings for each have been extremely impressive. Yeah, they really have. I mean, of course, for folks that have been following Revision Path around that time, I talked all about where the Black designers had Mitzi on the show and everything. But yeah, it is interesting seeing how all of that has, and I mean, I have to say it has come together very quickly. I mean, even from my somewhat limited perspective of looking at kind of the landscape of the design industry from 2013 to now and seeing how few events and things there were around Black designers, even just media, like when I started Revision Path, there was not any other podcast that were talking to Black designers about the work that they've done. And now, of course, nine years later, there's several others besides myself. But just to see yeah. how things have grown in such a a very short period of time, I'm curious to know, like, why do you think these other events just don't get it? Because what, what I find interesting, uh, you know, aside from the speed of all of this is how I don't want to say how limited the resources have been, but like y'all really pulled all this together from nothing. <laughs> like, yeah. like you put out a web page or you put out a call on Instagram or something and you have thousands of people flocking to you, registering, you know, signing up for your event, spreading the word, fostering community. And like you see larger, larger slash other design competitions or events and things like that, that, that don't even come close to that. Like, why do you think yeah. that's the case? I think it's a number of reasons. Going back to my thesis research that I know we talked about in the initial interview, there are a large percentage of black college students that end up going to these so that end up going to social serving programs because based off of the research that I did in my graduate year of college, there are a lot of students that when choosing a major will choose majors that help them either contextualize things they've experienced or, or choose majors that help them advocate for others. And I think that advocacy piece for a lot of people comes off as being political. I think hmm. with design, while it can be a tool that's used for advocacy, it's often communicated solely as a tool of luxury. So even in terms of how conferences typically communicate themselves. So if you go to like that, not calling, not picking at any conference in particular, but if you visit Hughes' site, it's really all about how to learn the latest and greatest in designing for a Fortune 500 company or a major firm that's dealing with a Fortune 500 company. But it's never articulated. It's never really given any attention to areas that maybe of concern for people of color. And the, the reason being is that design always wants to come off as being apolitical. In my thesis research, I quoted Melissa Harris Perry in her book, Sister Citizen. She had this segment where she talks about 
whenever people think of politics, they're often thinking about Democrats, Republicans, when in reality, the art of being political is really attempting to pull one person's attention from one thing to something else. So if I'm trying to get you to look somewhere that you're not currently looking, that happens to be political. And then she then makes the argument that being black in America is really a political act within itself because you're consistently attempting to get people to recognize your humanity. So the discussions that we have at a lot of these events are not just about being a better designer or what you can do in the workspace, but it's it's really these difficult discussions around the nuances of being marginalized. How do you exist in a space being a Black person where you might be microaggressed or the racism that you experience may not be as subtle all the time. It can be subtle and sometimes it can be very direct. What can you do to protect yourself mentally, emotionally, and physically? What are the recourses? How can other people be there for you to to support you through these types of things? And in many cases, these are conversations that aren't really had in your traditional conferences, but they're topics of discussion. And they're, they're things that Black designers are speaking about, whether or not these, these conferences are including them. And not to mention, traditional design programs typically tend to keep things very Eurocentric, and they don't typically provide much room for cultural relativity or exploration into the cultures that a lot of people of color may come from. So if you now have workshops that are being done, so for example, Trey Seals will be giving his workshop. A lot of his work is predicated on designing typefaces of marginalized audiences. That's not something that would traditionally be taught at a design school currently. But if it's something that's being provided at a workshop, it now becomes something that deals in that nuance and becomes interesting to people that have been marginalized that want to know more about that history, but also how do I leverage that history and culture into my professional practice? Black Ignite, How Design, where the Black designers and State of Black Design each give you an opportunity to kind of have that conversation safely and also learn to explore visually things that you may not see traditionally in the classroom. Yeah, I will say, you know, each of those events also are very different. Like, State of Black Design is is this sort of conference slash career fair. Hue is kind of like a family reunion kind of feel almost. Mm-hmm. Ignite, at least from what I've seen from Ignite, is just like just a bunch of straight up short talks, almost like a, I forget the name of it. What's it called? Pechacucha? I might be yeah, mispronouncing yeah. that. <laughs> but like it's sort of a kind of a series of short talks and things like that. And then you may have a conference that's got more longer, more didactic talks or something, but no, I, I like that each of these events also has their own kind of flavor. They all sort of feed on each other. They work in concert, at least from what I see with other black design events that are out there. Like, of course, the four that you mentioned, which are fairly new, that doesn't preclude also the existence of black in design, which takes place at Harvard University or yeah. Creative Control Fest, which takes place in Columbus or, you know, like it doesn't shy away from those events or, or try to pit one against the other. Like it's all one community but or at least it's all one shared community i should say like if you're a black designer now this is probably the best time in history for you to attend events that specifically speak to you as a black designer like it hasn't ever been i think this good in terms of variety yeah at least not that i can recall and yeah i I feel that wholeheartedly 
it's really interesting the entire idea of you know these separate organizations that really are in support of one another and aren't looking to kind of pit anyone against anybody like no one's asking attendees of one not to go to the other and in fact we're usually co-promoting whenever where the black designers how or black unite has something if they send it to me i'm always 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 promoting and pushing people to attend and they've done the same thing for me and it's it's really been appreciated now you're you know juggling state of black design of course with teaching you're a design educator you're an assistant professor at texas state university in austin when you were back on the show the first time you were teaching at LaRoche College, which is in Pittsburgh, what is it like teaching at Texas State? Like, tell me about your classes, your students. Like, how is it? Texas State is a really interesting place. It's about 30, 40 minutes south of Austin and also about 30, 40 minutes north of San Antonio. So it's sandwiched between these two major cities. And in terms of diversity, it's probably the most diverse institution in terms of student base that I've ever taught at. And it's really beautiful to kind of see. In terms of things that I've taught there, I typically teach a few design research classes, both at the graduate and undergraduate level. And I've also taught foundations and typography. But I consider myself more to be a design researcher, so I'm always happier teaching the former than the the latter courses. And now do you have a specific focus of your design research while you're at Texas State? I would say yes and no. So at the graduate level in the past, I've taught a class called Communication Seminar, which is kind of an introduction to design research methods that students can use for their thesis. So I begin educating students on research methodologies like quantitative research methods, literature reviews, so forth and so forth. How do you build your design direction? map out your plans, constructing logic models, so forth and so forth, identifying stakeholders, yada, yada, yada. I teach a class called Design for Experience as well, um, where I typically tend to leverage some of my own graduate-based research around using design, not only to using design classroom, not only as a space to develop new skill sets, but also expand considerations on what things can be applicable for. So I'll teach design research methods and some UX techniques, but rather than using them for digital artifact, I ask students to kind of expand their thought process on what an interface is. It doesn't necessarily have to be strictly digital, but it's anything that anybody interacts with. So if we're designing for behavior purposes, how could we use these research methodologies in order to bring about a particular behavioral change versus doing it strictly for additional clicks or site visits or or, or things of that nature. Sometimes we will work in collaboration with other organizations. One summer I saw the course, we worked in collaboration with uh, Cuyahoga's Municipality Housing Authority. They were applying for a $50 million grant to improve the quality of life for residents in a lower income community. And we asked to be a part of the project. So we jumped in while they were performing their research and began asking questions to identify certain things that were happening in the community that design could be used to leverage as a um, solution to improve quality of life. One of the problems that we ended up finding was uh, given the conditions that folks were living in, one thing that they definitely were missing was adequate opportunities to build community with one another 
and communicate with one another while also bottlenecks around communicating with the leasing office and the people that manage the property. So we proposed a number of, of solutions that had nothing to do with digital components, but were more so interfaces that we can build on the community grounds themselves to kind of improve that person-to-person and person-to-business interaction on on these grounds in order to change uh, some of the cultural issues that were happening within that particular space. This year, there are a few projects that we're, we're going to be working on as well that are, that are all about community engagement, interacting with a group of people, but then attempting to solve a problem for behavioral change while using design as a solution. For me, I find this a lot more interesting than working along the lines of an arbitrary design brief, because I feel like the strictly giving students a brief doesn't give them an opportunity to meet people and expand their thought processes. And if as designers, we're supposed to be this empathetic group, but we never get an opportunity to meet or engage with the people that we're designing for, we're strictly designing within our own locked-in biases. And that can also be very dangerous for marginalized audiences. So putting them in a position where they have to get out of the classroom and interact with an audience puts them in a space where they're challenging their own perceptions on what a problem is. And if they're designing with this audience and as they're working, as they're meeting them and as they're engaging them, it puts them in a, in a process of thinking, you know, my best results or realizing that my best results can come at hand when I'm working directly with the person who the solution is for versus working behind a desk without ever having to engage with them. I'm curious, you know, you've been there now for about three years. How would you say things have changed since when you kind of first started there? Because it sounds like what you are doing right now is something you maybe had to work up to to getting to. I'm still at a point where I'm attempting to recommend changes and then get buy-in around those changes, which isn't a slight against Texas State. I think the reality is I'm an extremely young professor. I'm only 35 years old, and many of the professors around me have been teaching for just as long as I've been living in some cases. So for me to be this young and come and make attempts to challenge the way that certain things are being done, even if I'm citing that in new research or things of that nature for any program would be a lot to take in because that, whether directly or indirectly, illuminates that for potential changes to come, they'll need structural pedagogical changes as well to make room for some of these changes. So I think I think for myself, there's still this need to kind of get buy-in or, or to prove the benefit of particular things that other folks may not be um, too familiar with. How would you say you've grown as an educator since you first started teaching? I think there's a, a number of different things. I think naivete is something that I've shed a lot. Have you ever seen the there was a documentary on charter schools. It was called Waiting on Superman. Oh, yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Yeah, I watched it again recently. There was a section of the uh, of the movie, of the documentary, one of the uh, educators who started a charter school in Harlem was talking about how he went to get his degree at Howard and he learned so much and felt like as soon as he got out, he'd be able to change and improve the entire education system within two years, three years, if it, uh, if, if he was being lazy, but he had all the information necessary and he was going to get in there and make all those changes. I think that's where I was when I first started teaching. I, I was really enthusiastic about the education that I got. I felt super empowered about it. And I immediately felt like I'm going to jump in and make all of these changes. The longer I've been teaching, 
the more I've realized that it's never an immediate change. You can never change the flow of the river that you're in, but you can disrupt the water. And if you make these minor disruptions over time, you can you can make an you can make an immediate impact. Well, not immediate, but you can make this impact for that immediate space, but you might not be able to change the flow of the water that you're currently in. And I think that's something that I've had to kind of sit with and I guess be more strategic about what impact can I have and what impact will I be will I be okay with having if I can't change the entire flow of the river itself. What do you think about kind of the state of design education now as it relates to diversity? Because I'd imagine with the years that you've put on this conference now and even, you know, changing to different schools that, you know, maybe you have gathered a bit of a reputation, a good reputation, I mean. But, you know, like how from your perspective, how do you see design education? I think design education is at this really interesting spot. I think there are topics about decolonizing design practice. And there are a lot of people that are doing a lot of work on pluriversal approaches. Professors such as Leslie and Noel, they're continue to do amazing things and encourage me in a lot of the stuff that I do. I think there are a lot of folks like Cheryl, Cheryl Miller and her collaborations with designers all from the continent of, of, of America and working with Afro-based designers and, and attempting to bring their aesthetic and their, their design language to the forefront, I think is also something that's really interesting. From an institution standpoint, in a university standpoint, I think a lot of the difficulty ends up being in people being threatened by that change or, or being uncertain how to how to handle the new wave of demands that are coming for design institutions and programs, especially as the student populace becomes browner from one generation to the next. I think in a lot of ways, it's it's an exciting time to be a student and it's an exciting time to be a professor and see universities make room for these things to happen. I would imagine a difficult time for those that have no idea what steps to take next. <laughs> um, like if, if I've never had to consider anything other than Swiss design or anything other than the Bauhaus, and now you're saying that there are all of these other visual languages or aesthetical approaches or cultures that I should include in my curriculum and give equal amounts of respect to this one thing that I've made my bread and butter over the last 30 to 40 years, I can imagine that there's a lot of anxiety. But still, it's necessary. And anxiety is never a, a reason to be paralyzed by anything. Have you encountered any of that, like from other educators? Yeah. Yeah. All the time. It's usually not as direct as this makes me feel nervous or I don't necessarily know how I can stack up to attempting to do this. But a lot of times it may come off in passive aggressive terms of we've done it this way for so long and maybe you should just learn how to do it the way that we've been doing it before you make recommendations for changes. Yeah. I don't think people ever come out and they and say that, hey, this makes me feel uncomfortable and or insecure about approaching this particular subject matter. Can I work with you on this? It's usually this attempt to kind of stopping the clock or slowing down change. And that's not necessarily me saying a Texas State thing. I think that's something that's happening in a lot of places within the industry. Mm. Yeah, I've had a few other design educators on the show particularly last year, that spoke to that as well. And also speaking to how, I guess, students are kind of looking for more 
from their design curriculum. They're looking for more from their design educators in terms of how they see the world now and the work that they're doing. They want to know how can they be more, I guess, involved in different causes and stuff like that. From your perspective, like, have you seen a similar kind of change over the years from your students? Yeah, definitely. So in my my graduate research, when I was at Kent State University, there were a few interviews that I did where I asked students how they ended up choosing their majors. And there were a number of students that ended up choosing a major just because some of the course material was was interesting to them. So there was one student in particular that grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood, but that student was black. So that student felt that there, there wasn't enough access that he had to finding out more information about people that looked like him within the, 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 the city and neighborhood he lived in. So he ended up taking a few African-American history courses, and then that ended up becoming his major because he fell in love with the subject matter. I feel like there are a number of visual students that I've taught that have been a part of design programs, both at Texas State and La Roche and Tri-C when I taught there and also at Kent State when I was a graduate assistant. And there's this this interest in exploring visual languages that that relate to them culturally, that they can see themselves in. And I think it's really amazing for them when they find that, but it does create a space for a space of pedagogical opportunities for professors if if we're willing to to bravely lean into it. One conversation I had with a few of my cohorts recently, especially considering that Texas and the university is within the southwest of the nation, I mentioned I think it would be a really good idea to start doing research and course and creating coursework and materials around the influence of. San Marcos has a huge Mexican population, as does Texas in general, but trying to do this uh, course on the influence of Mexican and Southern American aesthetics on the design language of the Southwest. I feel like you teach a course like that to some of uh, some of our students that are looking for something different than Swiss and Bauhaus design or Eurocentric perspectives on things. I think that's also another opportunity where you can then teach something that allows a student to have a greater appreciation for a culture outside of themselves or give a student an opportunity to further contextualize their own identity and have a greater appreciation for some of the things that they were exposed to without having full knowledge of what uh, the richness of these things were. Now, along with, you know, those kinds of opportunities, you've also managed to network with and meet a lot of other black design educators. Tell me how that's been. It's been amazing to be completely honest with you. I've been able, since the first state of Black design, to meet a number of people and try to find ways to collaborate and or talk about new pedagogical approaches or projects that are being offered in classrooms. I've met consistently with Kalina Sales, Dr. Perry Sweeper, and Dr. OG in our biweekly DFA meetings. And some of the stuff that they're working on and some of the insights they share with me are super invaluable in terms of my growth as a professor. I meet consistently with Teresa Moses. She and I are curating a state of black design book. And of course, during these meetings where we're talking about the book assignments, there are consistent topics or discussion points around what's being done in our classroom. Dr. Leslie and Noel and I are working on a book called Restorative Design. I'm learning a lot about her practice, not just through writing with her, but even some of the experiences she shares and what we've been writing, all of which kind of enriches me in a lot of ways that I may not say to them consistently. But it's been an amazing opportunity to kind of 
see and hear other people that look like me that are dealing with students similar to who I'm dealing with give me some of their master tips or even seeing some of them just blow up and shine in their own career. Professors like Jennifer White Johnson, every time I look up, she's doing something else amazing. And the community that she advocates for and and the work that she's been getting has been, you know, amazing to sit back and watch. What do you want to see this year? Like, is there anything you want to accomplish outside, of course, of State of Black Design? But what do you want to see this year? I think the thing that I want to see this year that I'm hoping that I can pull off is really this professional development. Well, not really professional development. I'm hoping that these tables that we build, whether it be where the Black designers, Black Ignite, how, and the state of Black design, that we find a way to continue to pouring into our collective audiences outside of our annual conferences. I know where the Black designers has a really good community. They keep in touch via Slack, but trying to find a way to continue growing people in their own personal endeavors, not just through professional development methods, but also just through personal artistic explorations. I think having a space where we allow other creatives to learn more about what it is that they want to do, but make it give room for people to kind of explore new avenues and develop aesthetics and techniques and their own visual approaches would be something that I would love. And I think it's something that we need currently as well. And also, you kind of teased this this book idea a little bit earlier. Like, tell me about that. Yeah. So after the first day of Black Design, we did a CFP, a call for proposal for essays. From anybody who was interested in contributing, we've gotten a number so far and a commitment to print from Intellect Publishing. So currently, Teresa and I are reading through it and making attempts to decide what changes need to be made if there are essays that need to be lengthened and things of that nature, but we're hoping that it'll be published by next year. Nice. Congratulations on that. Thank you kindly. So overall, and this may be, you know, kind of a tall order from where you're at now, but like, aside from this year, like where do you see yourself in the future? Like five years from now, what sort of work do you want to be doing? Five years from now, I'm hoping I have tenure, but the work I'd like to do, I think it's similar to what I was hoping to do In my initial interview, I would love to begin a design for social good innovation practice that I do alongside my teaching. I'm hoping that the traditional classes that I'm allowed to teach, that over time I'm given room to change them slightly. So it's not just commercial focus, but we're giving them techniques and tools that they can use for commercial entities if they choose to, but also allowing them to kind of advocate or contextualize their own experiences through these uh, methodologies as well. I'm hoping that I can continue to write these books. I'm hoping that, yeah, five years down the line, all of these books that I'm working on currently are published, that I can continue to evolve the state of Black design to meet the needs of its audience. Sounds good. Well, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you, about state of Black design, about everything you're working on? Where can they find that information? You guys can find me at on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active there. I do have a site, omarisouza.com. And finally, I'm, I'm pretty active on Instagram, which is just omari.souza. And the event? The event is stateofblackdesign.com. All right. And by the time this comes out, tickets will be available so people can register to, to sign up, correct? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Please register. We, we'd love to see you guys there. All right. Sounds good. Well, Omari Souza, I want to thank you so much for coming back on the show. You know, we've kept in touch since we 
have done that interview back in 2017. So it's been amazing to just see your growth as an educator, as a researcher, and really getting more involved in doing community work with what you're doing with State of Black Design. So I'm excited to see what is going to come next for you in the future. And of course, I'll definitely be tuned in for this year's event. And hopefully people that are listening will will tune in as well. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. No problem at all. And I appreciate you as well for having me and all the advice that you've given me as well since 2017. Big, big thanks to Omari Souza. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Omari and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. And of course, thanks to our wonderful sponsor for this episode, Brevity and Wit. Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA, inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit, creative excellence without the grind. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. So what did you think of the interview? Better yet, what do you think about the podcast overall? We would love to hear from you, so please don't be a stranger. Hit us up on Twitter or Instagram. Just search for Revision Path, all one word. Or you can leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, on Amazon Music, even on Spotify. Let everyone you know know about the show, because it really helps us grow and reach more people all around the world. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.